Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to a high-energy edition of the Ruthless Variety program. That was Representative Liz Cheney contextualizing her defeat on Tuesday evening. I mean, there's like, you know, delusions of grandeur, and there is that. (laughs) I I particularly enjoy, um, you know, the Lincoln reference, like... You know, if you're trying to at all shake, like, your association to the sort of, like, Lincoln Project, never Trump, like, you know, angry. Feels a little close, doesn't it? Yeah, like, find somebody else. Finds a little, seems a little (laughs) close. Seems a little close. Also, you know, slavery. Yeah. Versus Trump. Right. Uh, Yeah. uh, Not exactly. You know, Lauren Boebert had this, like, banger of a tweet about that, where where she was like, uh... She quote retweeted some Liz Cheney, like some journal quote, uh, quote tweeting whatever uh, Liz Cheney said about Abraham Lincoln. And Lauren Boebert's like, the difference is Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves from Democrats, and Liz Cheney became a slave to Democrats. Oh, oh my God, dude. When Lauren Boebert's two handed jamming on Ooh, you. Jesus. I think what I liked about it in particular um, was um, your, your sort of chattering class. Uh, like never Trump or or media figure or liberal tweeting about how, you know, democracy is in peril if Liz Cheney loses this race. But like, you know, not the democracy that the voters vote and defeated her. Like, that's not good democracy. That's like the bad democracy. That's the bad. Like the voters, like electing somebody. Yeah, yeah. That's not the democracy. The democracy is like making sure she stays in power. And then also, yeah, there shouldn't really be that sort of democracy in Wyoming because it's smaller than D.C. and D.C. should be a state. They should just talk about that. A lot of really interesting triangulation there. Also, the REP that's right in front of your name is a is a kind. It stands for representative. (laughs) It doesn't. It's not dictator. Right. It's not. uh, It's a representative. It turns out you're supposed to like represent the people who sent you to Washington. what makes her Abraham Lincoln more than anything else is that she called all the cable networks. She rounded up her entire group of rhino uh, Twitter uh, allies, yeah. and she had them tweet. She had the cable networks cover her, and therefore she's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I love how Ashbrook is like quietly raging at someone. He's like, you know, they rounded up their Twitter rhinos. <laughs> it's like, damn, Ashbrook. <laughs> He's got it in him. He's got, well, we're going to get into that in much more detail along with a number of other issues that you're going to love. First off, I want to announce today's guest. God bless it. This is one of the best bookings we've ever had. Uh, Michelle Tafoya. For anyone over the last 30 years, if you've watched Monday Night Football, Sunday Night Football, uh, any sort of major sporting event, whether it's the Super Bowl or the Final Four, the one constant you see on the sideline is Michelle Tafoya. Turns out she is, in fact, a conservative, and she is a very outspoken one. She is doing the Lord's work, and boy, oh, boy, are we happy to have her on the program. I yeah. mean, so so like you said, over the past how many years, if you watch any sports, you know you know Michelle Tafoya is like the GOAT. 
yeah. of covering it. I, I, I can't believe we booked this. It's so good. And she's just fantastic. I, you're going to love the interview at the back end of the program on that. We also have a sponsor, a very important sponsor of today's program, uh, Americans for Prosperity. Everybody knows the name. You've seen the work. They're doing some interesting stuff. We've got Glenn Bolger and Jarrett Lewis later on in the program. We're going to walk through the national environment, some of the polling you're seeing versus kind of the speaking truth to the reality of where we should find things post-Labor Day. Yep. And then some specific things that they're working on that, that counter what Democrats' primary messages are against Republicans, it, kind of on the issue of health care and, and beyond. Anyway, it's fascinating stuff, and they got numbers to back it up. So we've got that. The other thing is, as you're listening to this later this afternoon, uh, we're going to be on Megyn Kelly's show again. Yeah. Boy, she a friend of the program. Great friend. And, and, we, and every time we're on there, it's like an absolute banger, so. We tend to say things that are uh, uncouth. <laughs> it's always a great time. Yeah. Like, it really is. It's just like a party. It's sort of she, by the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, for those of you who've only had experience listening to Megyn Kelly sort of in the confines of Fox News or on NBC, and you haven't listened to her podcast or watched her, her YouTube with us on it, you're going to be surprised. Like I, At this point, I definitely know what it would be like to grab a beer with Megan Kelly because that's what those episodes are like. That's what it's like. That's what it's like. Um, so with all of that said, let's get into the Liz thing. Okay. Uh, so obviously the primary election in Wyoming against Liz Cheney, that was Harriet Hageman was her, yeah. her, her primary challenger. Uh, the results kind of speak for themselves in a lot of ways on Tuesday night. Hagman wins by f- almost 40 points. Yeah. A total blowout yes. of the once number three Republican at the beginning of this Congress. Mm-hmm. The number three Republican in the House of Representatives. She has since been absolutely trounced by Harriet Hagman. We're going to talk about all of that or more. Let me just open it for some thoughts immediately, and then we'll get into the D.C. response, and then we'll get into the reality of everything. Smug, why don't you lead the way? Um, I think I've kind of made... My my whole feelings about the situation clear anytime you know Liz Cheney is mentioned of I so so this is very complicated I know she had like Dick Cheney in an ad being like you have to support you know my daughter Liz Donald Trump is a threat well if you go back to 2016 uh, Dick Cheney was one of the few prominent Republicans who endorsed Donald Trump mm. that was a big deal I remember when that happened it was a huge deal when Dick Cheney endorsed Donald Trump. And to me, I think, you know, if, if your daughter is involved, you're, you know, your daughter could be running against Santa Claus. You know, like Santa Claus is, is the worst person to ever exist, right? The problem is that that's the whole scope. That's, that's Liz Cheney's existence is the shadow yeah. of her father. She, she's, she got that seat because of her father. Um, and what's really sad to me is I think it's tragic. It's like, you know, it's like a Greek tragedy in the sense that so her father came from nothing absolute nothing even dropped out you know he he failed out of of college was hanging up electrical wire in wyoming and and as he himself says it had a huge drinking problem and made not that there's anything wrong with that yeah and 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 made something of himself right he made something of himself worked his ass off and so when he hands off the you know the baton to liz cheney it's kind of like okay you know as every child should understand i got to move the ball further to my parent that's the whole purpose of what we do for her to to squander everything that she was given 
on just becoming this like left-wing media darling because that's all she is that's all she is i think there's a lot to be said of of this wasn't about her being like oh i'm on a crusade for democracy she was on she was on a crusade for liz she was on a crusade for herself. She was on a crusade to make a name for herself among the media. There's a difference. Like, uh, uh, we've had Brian Kemp on, who's a great example of someone who's like, listen, 2020 is settled. The election is settled. That's it. And he just got, he just won his Republican primary. Do you know why? The difference is if you make it about, okay, uh, here's what I've done for voters. Here's what I've done for the people I represent. And here's what I'm going to do for them. And all I care about is what I can do for them. And what's the message that Liz Cheney had over the past X amount of months that had to do with Wyoming. Right. Uh, like like any voter in Wyoming is like, okay, these are the issues that matter to me. Inflation. Like, I want to do a Google search. When's the last time she said anything about inflation? Yeah, Kemp won with 73%. Yeah. Right, yeah, right, he was right. an even wider margin the yeah. other way, right? Right. And I think uh, you, you made some great points. I take a slightly different view. I actually, I, I was a huge fan of, of vice presidents for a very long time. I was a huge fan of Liz Cheney's. But whenever you run a race for representative your job is to convey to people that you're carrying their concerns to washington people are concerned about higher prices they're concerned about a number of things that do not involve donald trump and uh she spent so much time talking about the only thing donald trump donald trump is the only thing that mattered to her and it just it did not align with what voters in the state were interested in they but, want somebody to bring prices down they want somebody to challenge the current regime not the previous regime and and and, and outside of like the pocketbook issues that voters care about like if you are like a diehard republican not even someone who necessarily loved donald trump but somebody who's just a registered republican like there's something attitudinal that's important, mm -hmm. you know, and this isn't just Republicans, it's Democrats, too. Like, you know, it's it's hard to get excited about voting for somebody who's like constantly like shooting into the tent, like, mm -hmm. you know, at their that's own party the all the time. Yeah. You know, and like there's a way to stand on principle like Brian Kemp and still deliver for your constituents and people know you're a conservative. If you make your entire personality, your opposition to the former president who's not in office anymore, you're going to have a bad time. Exactly. Yeah. That's the whole orange man bad thing. It's like if you make your personality being mad at, at Trump, what are you trying to accomplish in life? And and for an elected official to do that, like for, for people on Twitter who you can tell have absolutely been brainwormed out to be like, my personality is orange man bad. You're like, that's pathetic. But if you're an elected official, your job is 24-7. Every waking moment, your job is serving your constituents. What has she done? Like, yeah, I, so I got what's a couple your focus things. been on that? I got a couple of things that will contextualize exactly what you're saying. The first is, I read in the New York Times, I read, you know, read a fair amount of reviews of all this thing because the press has been just horrific on this issue. Like, she's the only one with any sort of courage, which is ridiculous. But this this stood out to me. This is from the New York Times. During one of Ms. Hagman's debate prep video conferences, she suggested to aides that they scour Ms. Cheney's congressional news releases to see how many were about Wyoming or were critical of President Biden, according to two people involved. The releases were almost all about January 6th and Trump. That perfectly contextualizes what you're talking about. And this, the second point I'll make on this is Look, I don't care if it's Donald Trump or anybody else. If you d entirely define your existence by someone else's existence, yeah. yep. in politics or in life, you will never succeed. Never. For or against. 
For or against. I that's mean, the truth. The, the reality it. is what, what people want to know is that you're for them. They're the ones who are Bingo. voting for you, depending on you to carry their voice to Washington. They can watch Fox and find out nice things about Trump. They can watch CNN and hear terrible things about Trump. You know, they can they can pick and choose what they want to do. Their lawmaker is somebody who they want and they expect to carry their ideas to Washington. Like I think of, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, the history of, of politics and what actually works, I think a great way to, to contextualize that is you look at Reagan with like an absolute landslide win. And the reason was the message was 100% about the people, the voters. Yeah. Who would have thought? People who like you discussing their issues and it makes it more likely that they vote for you. Who who would have thought? It's a radical idea. And for the the, the the thing is that like when Nancy Pelosi is totally cool with having Liz Cheney be the ringleader of, of, of this committee, what, what what's that saying? Is yeah, list, is Nancy Pelosi is like this is a perfect Trojan horse to destroy my enemies. I think that's I right. Love this. I think that's right. I but I also think like look, look, this program was extremely critical of Liz Cheney when she was in that leadership race against Elise Stefanik mm-hmm. and lost her number three position because of our mantra: "Don't take the bait." Exactly. Right? And she consistently took the bait. And if you're a member of leadership. You're not allowed to define the terms of your party based upon all of the presuppositions that the mainstream media and Democrats make about you. Mm-hmm. You're not. You're just that's you have to chart a different path. I don't care if it's pro-Trump or anti-Trump. You have to figure out how to get a different path forward looking that isn't entirely shooting inside the tent. She didn't do that. Nope. But what made things worse, I think, in the kind the reason you see a 40 point spread here is that she was entirely defined. Her closing message, as you said, with the former vice president, wasn't about, hey, you can always count on Liz to take the, tr- to take the truth wherever it is and whatever it is, whether it's uncomfortable or not. That's not what it was. What he said was her goal is to make sure that Donald Trump never returns to power. Okay. Well, Donald Trump's not in power. Joe Biden is. And the problem that most of her constituents have is they can't fucking afford a gallon of milk. This is right. This is exactly right. right. And so how you figure out how to fight today's battle is the most important part of being a quote-unquote representative of the concerns that you're dealing with. I saw saw this tweet from Shane Goldmacher at the the New York Times where clearly it was fed to him from Liz Cheney's campaign where he was like, in the closing days of Liz Cheney's campaign, they g- used digital geofencing to target advertisements yeah, I saw this. around Bedminster, New Jersey, and where uh, Kevin McCarthy was having a fundraiser for Republican congressional It's Lincoln, it's Lincoln Project tactics. Yeah, a lot of Wyoming and, votes. And I was like, yeah, you're going to get a lot of voters, uh, you know, 20 states away. Outstanding work. Right, you're like auditioning for an MSNBC primetime That's slot. what it was. Like, that's not trying to win an election. But here, here, So, like, like, the people who say that they give a shit about democracy, democracy happened in Wyoming. Bingo. That's, that's what happened. That's it. That's what happened. But he, right. here's the other thing that you got to take away from this. The mainstream media has an invested interest in ensuring that you believe this was entirely a, a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah. They believe that the more they can inject Donald Trump into everything, the better it is for ratings. I think, obviously, the statistics bear that out. They didn't have that same take after the Georgia election with Brian Kemp. Nope. Right? 
the difference, this is not about Liz Cheney conducting a January 6th commission, although the parallels here are that she used the January 6th commission to entirely define who she was as a representative yeah. and who she believes is the faults of the Republican Party. Here's, here's some of those press releases you mentioned earlier. Uh, Cheney on Dispatch Live, January 6th, crossed a line. They'll never be crossed. Next one. Cheney, Select Committee, opening statement. Next one. Ch- Cheney, opening remarks at Select Committee. Next one. Cheney, closing statement at Select Committee. <laughs> Next one. Cheney, opening remarks at Select Committee's third public yeah, hearing. One, one, you know what I mean? Like one right after the other. She didn't want to win. And there's some, other yeah. stuff, there's some other stuff in here, you know, later on down the line. But it's like three weeks of Jan 6 press releases. Great closing message. Great closing message. One word I did not hear you read was Wyoming. <laughs> or or <laughs> inflation. Right? I mean, th- th- those are, it's just so simple. Mm-hmm. And yet the media would have you believe that this is simple in another direction. Right. That this, this is all about how the Republican Party has lost its mind and that it is all sort of at the the fist of Donald Trump and it will always be sort of this deferential fealty to to Trump. Now, don't get me wrong. Donald Trump has a ton of influence in these primaries, mm-hmm. tons. But that's not what it is. If it was, Brian Kemp wouldn't be running for governor right now. That's not that's not what this is. What this is, and certainly Eric right. Greitens wouldn't have gotten third place right. in Missouri right. two weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. What she, what she did was made a conscious decision months ago to run for a job as a contributor to MSNBC rather than a congressperson for the state of Wyoming. And and also a martyr for a moment in time that, you know, I think many of the people... So let me just back up for a second. I think a lot of the, the problems that people in D.C. have when it comes to challenging your own party, it's okay to challenge your own party on some things, that you feel strongly about as it relates to the constituency that you represent. If it doesn't, you have bigger problems. Right. But when you do that, instantly there is this media following that props you up and calls you a hero. Hmm. This is like a McCain syndrome, right? You're surrounded then by people who do not have your best interests. They're progressives at heart, but they love you because you're the one who undermines the party, Mm -hmm. right? But you begin to associate with those people because they give you the positive reinforcement. And when they give you the positive reinforcement, they then begin to lead you down roads that don't have anything to do with the conservatism or the reason that you came there in the first place. Jeff Flake is a perfect example. It, of it's that. it's Stockholm syndrome. It's falling in love with the people who who have like who've taken hold of you. Now mm-hmm. now never mind the fact never mind the fact that if Liz Cheney would have won this primary, every single Democrat in the world would have turned coded immediately and tried to undermine her. One hundred percent immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. All this like the last icon of the Republican Party bullshit would have gone away in a heartbeat because they don't care. They're just every shirts single, and skins. Every single one of these people who are like, oh, wow, I, I, I can't believe the courage that you have Liz Cheney. Like, 10 years ago, we're like, your father needs to be sent to The Hague. Like, mm-hmm. he needs to be executed. This guy's war criminal. This is unbelievable. And, and you know, kudos to her for turning people who hate her father into a donor base for a failed campaign. And and apparently she said that now uh, uh, she's going to be launching some group that's like... Well, another perfect example. Like, how many people? Out. How many people do you know that lose an election and is an incumbent lose an election in the next day that they've got a new group 
What do you, what does that tell you about the motivation? They were never focused on well, winning. They, t- they, exactly. they never like, oh, wanted exactly. Oh, oh, here's what we're going to do next. Here's exactly. The next step. At some period in time, she determined that she was not going to try to win the election. Mm-hmm. She was no longer interested in representing the views of the people from Wyoming who have a different point of view than she does. She wants she she's a Washington person and that's okay. That's what you're allowed to, to you can be that in this world. You're just not going to win an election asking people to vote for you as their representative. And if she and if she runs for president, like she's trying to like tease that she is, she's going to be another McMuffin. It's going to be a McMuffin situation all over. And like that's what you're doing with your family's legacy. Spe- like speaking of the people who propped her up and gave her all of this positive reinforcement, uh, I'm looking at the Lincoln Project's uh, independent expenditure reports on the FEC website here. <laughs> Come on. I see. I can't imagine what those look like. see a giant expenditure against Kelly Loeffler, David Perdue, obviously, in the Georgia runoff. Huge one against Elise Stefanik, who ran against Liz Cheney in that race. Uh, Huge, you know, um, opposition ads against J.D. Vance, pro, you know, Raphael Warnock ads, yada, yada. The list goes on. You know what I don't see in here? Nothing in Wyoming. Nothing in Wyoming, huh? Interesting. Mm. Interesting. They they didn't spend a dime, you know. Mm. Propping up uh, Liz Cheney, even though they tweet about what a hero she is all day. That tell, all, should tell you something. It should tell you something that right? maybe they don't actually yeah. care yeah. about the people that they pretend are their allies. The point is, she should have been challenging Muriel Bowser. <laughs> <laughs> she should not have been running against Harriet Hageman. That's yeah, a good point. I, I mean, it, Ooh, it, it, very, Dude, very DC-centric. <laughs> but of course, the mainstream media loads up their pre canned takes. Uh, the Washington Post op-ed, the country needs more... Uh, Liz Cheney's another Washington Post op-ed Liz Cheney and other jilted lovers need to move on from the GOP New York Times op-ed Liz Cheney in the twilight of the old Republican elite this is a party that's like doing historically well with Latino voters and African American voters and you would never know it by reading the mainstream media no No, you you wouldn't you wouldn't these are publications that have become more and more partisan even within the last 10 years these are these are press releases from the DNC they look at the DNC they literally these publications look at a DNC press release and say not strong enough not punchy enough right let's punch it up and put it out in our own words (laughs) yeah bingo I mean, it, it, it's just, it's so true. And the people who are coming out now, hand over fist, who are like, oh, Liz Cheney, the last of the Mohicans, are basically just partisan Democrats. I mean, what you're talking about with the op-ed pages and the editorial pages and all of even the news pieces, it's a, it's a corporate super PAC. Th- their goal is not to try to reaffirm people like Liz Cheney. Right. Their goal is to defeat Republicans, which Liz Cheney did a terrific job of articulating. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? And, right. And, and it's not just Donald Trump. She's also against Ron DeSantis. She is against... She said... A, she came out and said that she would have a very difficult time voting for Ron DeSantis. Which is... If that is your you position, go. you are not a Republican. Nope. You're right. not. You're just not. And that's the end of the story. Look, I happen to think that Liz Cheney is a smart person. I happen to think that she made critical, critical errors, both in terms of her political career and just in terms of what she, what it, why it is that she came here in the first place. Like, if her goal was to try to advance conservatism, which it was in the first couple of years that she was here, she did everything to move that backwards. Mm. Because she didn't talk, I don't care if you have Donald Trump or not, she didn't talk about any of the issues that no. conservatives are concerned no. about. Not no, one. Not a single Not thing. one. 
Not a single one. And if you call yourself a conservative and you're not concerned about inflation, if you think that Ron DeSantis and what he's doing in Florida is not the best example of what a Republican can do, you're not a conservative. Right. You're not a Republican. Right. And that, to me, is why Liz Cheney is looking for work. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, all right, let's turn the page. Guys, we haven't talked about this at all. It's been just like the talk of all of the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's live golf. Yeah. Right? A lot of a lot of sports. A lot of sports in this episode with you know Michelle Tofoya and now and now live. Which or uh sport as Mitt Romney would call it. Sport. <laughs> sport. Well, I'm a fan of sport. <laughs> I thought that was always awesome. Of <laughs> <laughs> being like it's not plural. It's sport. Um so look, I admit that I had conflicting feelings when this whole thing came out. I am a golf in Enthusiast. I love the PGA. Almost every Sunday, I'm locked in. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what tournament it is, if it's a major or if it's just like, you know, one of the other tournaments with like only five top 100 players in it, I'm watching it. Like, I love it. I love the coverage. I love Jim Nance. I mean, I just, I love everything about it. So I was like concerned when Liv first launched that they were somehow trying to pollute a game that I love. In particular, in my view, Tiger Woods can do no wrong. Tiger Woods can do no wrong. It's so sad. I've been with him. I've been with him. Since th- before his wife ruined his life. <laughs> like, what she did. It's his uh, most controversial it take. Makes, every time it makes me so sad. It's actually, his, happy, it's actually his wife's fault. He had a happy family. He was winning nonstop, making everybody money. And she ruins it for everybody. If it ruins wa- it for everybody, selfishly. Her and that pesky Denny's waitress. I mean, well, that's, I mean, like, the reason Sunday Tiger exists is sometimes he's got to refuel, you know? It's a couple, unbelievable. A couple wow. diner waitresses, you it know? Wa- it wasn't the waffles at Waffles at Waffle like, House. But like, Popeye spinach. If, if he's providing a future for your kids, he's being a good husband, and he's winning, the guy was winning. He was, he was on pace to break, like, every record that exists. What's the, like, one moment that you can you can point on the Tiger Woods timeline? <laughs> Of where he stops being on on pace to crush every record when his wife ruins his life. <laughs> Hits his car with, with golf clubs. <laughs> it's so it's such a hot take. Such a hot take. Oh man. But but look, so I was concerned about that. As this discussion has matured, you realize that the PGA came in this hard as hell, trying to ban players who joined the live tour try to advance this idea that it's entirely a you're anti-american somehow if you are against or, or if you're you're getting on the live tour right right and that's because you know lives backed by saudi arabia um you know the whole controversy with kamal uh, jamal khashoggi yeah and MBS. not the gun runner that you were talking not about the gun runner uh, it, it, we're talking about the, the washington post like journalist. the bad khashoggi Com- <laughs> right. yeah Right. Right. So um, anyway, it was a very, very difficult thing for me to sort of get over. But as I'm watching this whole thing unfold and I'm watching golfers choose what's best for their families, I kind of come back to this this deal where it's like, are, are we not in competition or are we not? Like yeah. nobody ever discusses whether or not the USFL is going to compete with the NFL. Mm-hmm. Or whether, like, you know, G League is going to be the next NBA. And it's because the product's better. It's not It's not because of some sort of 
bizarre strong arming by the NBA or MLB or NFL, it's because their product is just absolutely exquisite. And that's what I never understood about this threat from the PGA was, okay, but you have the gold standard with all the gold standard players. Just make the best product, which you do, make the best product and just let them do what they want to do, right? And that's kind of where I've come. But the, I think the best articulation of all this was this week, Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. I thought this was America. I thought we were a capitalistic society. I thought competition breeds our greatness. That's what I thought. I mean, isn't he right? So, so that's the thing is, so I, I, don't, I don't play, I don't really follow golf that much. But to me, it was, it was that simple of an argument. I never understood this whole thing of being like, it's like anti-American to get paid 10 times as much to play for, for this league that, who cares if, if Saudi, you know, the Saudi Arabian government is, is, is subsidizing it? Who cares? Well, but I mean, I think people's point is like the Saudi government, MBS, whoever is actually culpable of this, I think MBS is what it's been tied back to, basically butchered uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi, right? Yep. You know, so like, th- I mean, like that's, that's like their point here, but like, is that these are the, the same fault of somebody who, like, who plays on their golf league? Because I'll, t- I'll tell you right now, every person who has that argument has like nine hundred things in their house right now made in China, where they're running concentration well, okay, camps. Okay, okay. So it's right. just like, well, get no, the hell out so, of here. So this is golf. Well, so let me get to the other side of that point because it's like, it was like two weeks ago that President Biden, State Department approved fist bumping. Th- no, no, not just the fist bumping. The State Department just approved $3 billion in Patriot missile sales to Saudi Arabia. Like, if it's good enough for the American government, why the hell is it not good enough for the PGA? Right. I don't see anybody protesting Raytheon. Right. Who who makes the Patriot missile. Three bill yeah. to Saudi Arabia. Seems like a big number. So right. One thing that really caught my attention. And still couldn't get oil from my <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> one one thing that really caught my attention was when the Australian golfer who won the Open Championship at St Andrews, Cameron Smith, decided. Cam to, Smith, yeah, he signed up with the Live Tour. Oh yeah, and all of a sudden, it really, really shows that there is a lot of talent on that side. And so, I just wonder if there's not an opportunity at some point in the future to settle this whole conflict between the Live Tour and the PGA through competition. Just like the NFL and the AFL settled their competition with the Super Bowl. That's really interesting. Well, look, even if we didn't even get to that, even if we didn't get to that, what I just fundamentally don't understand is why the you don't focus on your own product, Mm -hmm. right? The Live Tour doesn't even have distribution rights. Right, like you, you can't, can't even you watch can't it. even find it. You got to you got to Google the website, go to the website, and then you're you're sort of out of luck. Well, and then also, why do we have to have like, what is this like rah rah around the PGA? It's like I'm sorry, but the PGA has a subsidiary in China. They have a whole Chinese tour. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. The exactly. PGA has an entire Chinese tour. They work closely with the CCP on that tour. So like, if we're talking about like who's pro America, nobody's pro America right. in golf. We just want to watch good golf. And, and why do you, why why this is the ultimate flaw that they made? Why would you make a fan choose sides here? I like golf. Yeah. I like good golf. I like watching good golfers play golf. Well, also, why why do I have to be? Why am I forced by the PGA 
to be put in a position where my patriotism is questioned based upon whether or not I watch golf with the Live Tour or Because you're, you're interested in whether DJ is going to do well that week. I'll watch both. So, so I have a, a, a similarly related issue that actually affects me. There was, I, I think it was three, four years ago, there was a bill. So currently, if you're a foreign airline, you can't operate domestically inside the U.S., right? And uh, I, I, it was like Etihad, Air, uh, you know, Qatar Airlines, like all those like ultra luxurious airlines wanted to start doing domestic flights within the U.S. Well, they didn't get, you know, the ability to. They, they didn't get that bill passed. Here's the thing is, can you imagine what would happen to flying in this country if now, you know, Every air, Delta American Airlines has to compete with an airline that's like, we'll give you like a leather massive plush first seat. class. Yeah, <laughs> every seat is just like your own suite. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. every airline here will be like, oh shit, we can't treat our people like garbage right. anymore. Right. You know, we like can't. Stephen we, like maybe, A. Smith's point. Like maybe, Bingo. like maybe the PGA could like I don't know try some more interesting formats other than four rounds of golf with eighty five percent of the golfers you have no idea who they are. <laughs> like like one of the best like golf uh exhibitions during covid was like that match with um oh the, uh, the Mickels- match yeah Mickel- the match. mickelson and manning and tom brady like that's entertaining yeah like, like as a golf fan i would like more golf i'd like different golf i'd like different stakes golf i'd like team golf i'd like all sorts of things and the pga gives me none of that so like i don't understand why everyone has to rah rah behind the pga tiger woods included and be like we have to defend this monopoly yeah this monopoly which by the way is registered as a non-profit in the united states is it really yeah. maybe the irs should get on that with its eighty-seven thousand new agents wow. you know like fucking unreal right no that i mean look that's a very good point i just i have a fundamental problem with making me the fan of golf have to believe i have to make a political statement out of my fanship of golf right it is it is not simply not credible for me to have to look at and support the the goals of saudi arabia or the treatment of women or how they dealt with jamal khashoggi I don't have to factor that in to appreciate good golf. I don't. Well, well now that's you, the goal of entertainment is to separate myself. Would from you that guys shit. see this story in Politico where they did this hit piece on um, Edelman for working for the Live Tour or some subsidiary? Well, it was in, or it was in, but that, God, that's a, really? it's a perfect example of why it networks into this into this uh, actual program because there's a political play now. That's right. so dumb. Right. There's now a political play where they're bringing. I mean, if Politico is writing about something, and I think this was a Daniel Lipman piece who like covers the inside of Washington and, and like the scuttlebutt, the behind closed doors. If that guy is writing it. Yeah. That means they're wired up in D.C. Yeah, mm-hmm. Very yeah. well sourced. And they, and they try to ensure beyond a shadow of a doubt that lawmakers now see this as a U.S. versus Saudi Arabia discussion when it's not. I, it's I, golf, bro. Like, this I, is so I, Does ridiculous. anybody think that Wayne Gretzky's son-in-law is somehow a tool of Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Also, like, um, is Politico going to accept advertising on their website from Raytheon? Right. You know, they just took $3 billion from Saudi Arabia, and we apparently can't do that anymore. Like, <laughs> where exactly do you draw the line? This goes back to Stephen A. Smith's thing. I thought this was America. I thought this was America. Well, listen, I think it's a good point. We're going to continue to watch it. I mean, it is, like I've said, I've been, had conflicted feelings about it, but lately I'm just kind of like moving in one direction. But we'll, we'll continue to talk about because it, it is a po- political sports angle that it will play out in the next few months. Um, did you guys see, uh, like, it's sort of in the sports arena, this ultra marathon runner? No, no. no. 
Okay, so the New York Post wrote about this. Great, just a fabulous publication. Ultra marathon runner Dean uh, Kamazis. He was attacked by a coyote on a 150-mile run. <laughs> Can you imagine that? He Dude, was on a 150-mile like, run. A, a coyote, first of all, just for the audience who is not familiar, a coyote is not a gray wolf. No. <laughs> a coyote is about a 60-pound cur. <laughs> if a coyote comes up to you, fucking kick it. Yeah. It I, will I, go away. If it Ashford, comes back to you, kick it again. Ash, it is a collie with Ashford, shorter hair. Ashbrook is always your dependable anti-animal take. He, well, he's got, yeah, he's but, got But he's feelings. got a great point. So, like, I, I think he, he he makes a really good point. It is so, a mangy, stupid mutt. Yeah, but kick it. In, in the minds of 150 miles, do you know how tired well, so you would this be? Is, this, is, this is why he was I running. This. He was running by himself. He doesn't have a friend there with him to kick the coyote. <laughs> I Number one, one, I'd, I'd, number one, I'd rather fight a coyote than run 150 miles. Right? I don't think I could find 100%. a friend to run one mile, let alone 150 of them. N- number two, so so Ashbrook's point is great because, like, uh, so in the minds of a lot of people, they think like a wolf and a, and a coyote are analogous to the same size. Right. right. Number one, the coyote is is is, is dog like, right? If you can fight a dog, you can take a coyote. <laughs> Number two, wolves are enormous. You ever seen like a real yeah, timber wolf? Enormous. Like, no, you don't want any part like of that. the size of like, you know, horses. Like, you don't you want the goddamn part, You things. don't want any part of that. You don't want the wolf, dude. You got to run. It's over. But, but you'll so, probably die. But he, so here, this is what the question I'm, I'm posing to this group. This guy was on a 150 mile run. Yeah. That was his first mistake. He's 59. Um, if you're encountering a mangy mutt after 130 miles, you're going to get taken out. Is it Dean's fault? I'm rooting for the coyote, dude. I'm rooting for the coyote. <laughs> it's like nature teaches humans, you know, when you're like super old, you're not supposed to be out there running 150 miles. What? Nature's going to catch you. Yeah, but here's That's the, what happens. Here's the counterpoint. If you're at mile 130 of a 150 mile uh, run, yeah. wouldn't you be so pissed that somebody's trying to mess it up that it, adrenaline would just take over at some point? Yeah, you're all like, the runners like, oh, that like, runner I'm, high. I'm you 20, got that runner I'm high, bro. I'm 20 miles short Doesn't of my work. objective. <laughs> At 59 years old, you fucking mutt, get yeah. out of my face. Not happening, dude. If I'm 59 and like running, period. I think this is definitive mistake. proof that running long distances does you no good. It's crazy. It's it's a crazy thing to do. It is a dumb thing to do. I'm, I'm he 100% rooting for the coyote. It's a shame the coyote didn't get him. He it's, also could have been run, running with a gun. I mean, why didn't he run with yeah, a gun? What was his name? Uh, um, <laughs> You're going to be strapped. It was Perry. It was Rick Perry. You yeah. don't remember that story? Shot like, the rattlesnake, he, right? He went running. Was it was it a coyote or was it? I was thought it was a rattlesnake. He I shot. Think. So so this guy's out running, Rick Perry. When he, I think it was while he was governor of Texas. This is like 100%. It was, it was a coyote. This yeah. is like 100% what you expect out of the governor of Texas. Is, is This guy's out running. In his running shorts, he's got a fucking gun. Coyote rolls up on him. What does he do? Puts it down. Puts it it down. Shut the damn thing. (laughs) He's like, of course I've got my gun when I go for Right. If you don't have... I keep that on me. (laughs) If you don't have have your buddies behind you rolling slowly in a Dodge Ram who are packed and ready to shoot the coyotes, you're going to have to take matters into your own hands. Otherwise, you're the only person to blame. You either either bring a gun or have Indian honey. One of the two things. Either way, you know, like become prepared. But if you're also, if you're running 150 miles, you're an idiot and deserve to get attacked. Are we Are we good with that? Uh, 100%. Okay. That's my take. All right. All right. We're good. So um, one quick poll here before we get to uh, uh, some interviews. Absolutely fascinating poll of reality versus what we say publicly. This mm-hmm. is in Axios this week. It's a difference between public and private opinions. Did you guys see this? I did. 
So, so this is this like first of all, let me just read a couple of, of, of paragraphs, and then we'll get into the findings. Self silencing, uh, people saying what they think others want to hear rather than what they truly want to feel is skewing our understanding of how Americans really feel about abortion, COVID-19, what children are taught in school, and other hot-button issues. No shit. No shit, right? Uh, The best predictor of private behavior is private opinion. People's actual views are far more likely to be slated views uh, to drive consumer and social behavior. So uh, they took a look at some of this stuff. And this first one is fantastic. Um, CEOs should take a stand on controversial social issues. So publicly, 28% agree. Mm-hmm. Privately, 14%. Yep, half. Agree. Half. Right? Public schools focus too much on racism. Right? There's a huge, there's a 13 point mar- or 11 point margin between what you'll say publicly mm-hmm. and what you'll say privately masks mask wearing was an effective way to stop covid-19 uh 59% if they're asked publicly what they they say that they support that it's under half it's 47% if you ask privately i mean that chasm is 12 points that's a major difference in public opinion Huge. right Huge. there was this really great book it was called private truths uh public lies it came out a long time ago mm-hmm. it is uh timber karan great read and I think that's what this encapsulates. And I think a lot of the strength that the left projects that they have and can, you know, cow journos and everyone to get on board with is, is it's almost like a puffer fish where, like, they, they want you to think, oh, yes, you know, there's an absolute large group of people, the majority, who believe that, you know, pregnant men are suffering from climate change. And, and we right. have to protect them. Because right? we, we, we... But, like, it's in, in reality, if you actually ask people, and they know who, they can't be canceled for being like, that's the dumbest shit I've heard, dude. <laughs> well, you know, so I, good. I think part of it is, in our social media era, we live in this 24-7 panopticon where everybody is a, a public self and a private self. And, you know, what, what the left has done really well is they've turned the public square into a 24-7 struggle session. Where yeah. we all yep. have to just like be like, yes, that is true. I am racist at my heart because I'm a white male. You yeah. Know? Well, you just don't want to be canceled either, which right. is the other problem, right? In the public, you have the left coming after you if you ever say something out loud, even right. if you're like a private citizen. Right. Right. The, here's the most interesting. I'll wrap this up. The study found the biggest disparities amongst Hispanic respondents in political independence. Oh. On 14 of 25 topics, these groups had double digit gaps between what they say and actually believe amazing right maybe hell yeah maybe Based that's Latinos? why yeah maybe that's why we see a major change I love here it so much right i love it so more about public opinion and where we're heading in this election let's bring in glenn bolger and Jarrett lewis i want to welcome to the program two guys who are playing paying very close attention to the environment writ large and issues in, in particular and how republicans are winning or losing at this point in the year, I want to welcome Jarrett Lewis and Glenn Boulder. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks hey. for being on. Thanks for having us. Listen, fellas, I'm mean, Glenn. I've known you forever, uh, and so I mean, you, you kind of have this historical understanding of how these kind of cycles work. Um, where do you think we are right now? Well, it's better to be us than it is to be them. 
and I'm glad you actually mentioned my fascination with you know historical analogies in elections because that's actually what I came to talk about early on in this conversation. First thing is when you look at the 20 elections from 1960 to 1998, at 20 elections there were seven that had change, whether it was the president, the House, the Senate, or you know multiples. Uh, we've had 11 elections this century. Nine of them have had change. Mm. This is the first time in American history where we've had four straight presidents lose control of Congress. Mm. I think we're headed for a fifth, and I'm not going out on a limb there, um, but there's certainly plenty of historical precedents. And one being— I mean, the one exception, obviously, 02, right, after 9-11. Well, actually, 04 uh, was the one where there was no change. We actually picked up Senate seats, uh, took control of the Senate in 02. Sure, sure, okay. Um, so I think even I was thinking counts. about midterms. Yeah, no, understand. No, this is presidential uh, changes. This is uh, House changes or Senate changes. So or again, cycle. a combination. Nine of 11. Right. Wow, Nine, okay. Yeah, it's right. incredible. Only 04 and 2012 were there not changes. Hmm. Um, and then uh, you look at presidential approval on average, going into a midterm, in October, if the job approval is over 60%, the president in power, the party in power, only picks up an average of one House seat. That's nothing. <laughs> right. 49 to 59% approval, they still lose an average of 12 House seats. That's even with a 59% approval rating. Well, average. Joe Biden's a far cry from that number. Yeah, he's at 40%. Under 49, they lose an average of 39 seats. Now, I don't know if we're going to get quite that high, uh, only because Republicans are doing so well. You know, we're only a few seats behind. Uh, right, because the 2020 election exceeded yes, expectations, right? Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, this whole Biden surge thing, you look at real clear politics uh, average, uh, a month and a half ago, uh, no, five weeks ago, I should say, he had a 38% approval rating. Now it's 40%. That's not what you call a surge. <laughs> that's what you call margin of error change. It's almost as if the mainstream media would have you believe something that's not true, Glenn. I yeah. can't believe that. No, it's not like, look, they don't root for a side. It only seems that way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and then the last thing I would point out is, is really the one the group to look at is not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's independents. Mm. Base Republicans are going to turn out, and they're going to vote Republican. Base Democrats are going to turn out, they're going to vote for the Democrats. But you look at the last four major midterm change elections, 06, the Democrats won independence by 18 points. 2010, Republicans won them by 18 points. 2014, Republicans won them by 12. And then in 2018, the Democrats won them by 13 points. Yeah. So when independents go for a party by double digits, and they're poised to do that for Republicans, uh, that's a, a a big swing, particularly election. particularly on economic issues, right? I mean, we're talking about. I think you're you're probably referring to in a lot of ways a suburban electorate who is maybe economically more aligned with the Republican Party, socially, who knows, kind of all over the place. But when you have a bad economy, certainly inflation like this and a recession, uh, and that's what dominates the issue agenda right now, yeah. and it, that's not going to change between now and November. No. Uh, modest change in the inflation rate is going to be anything passing a bill where first of all it's going to drive up the inflation rate but it's not going to take effect for years uh, these policies what do you that's think not going to have any impact on independent voters let, let me ask you a question because there's been just a frantic effort out of the white house to try to like redefine what a recession is right or or downplay like joe biden says there's a zero 
inflation <laughs> last month, right? It was 8.5 or something like that. When you have actual voters that are in the center of the electorate or actually experiencing the economic condition, isn't it sort of a, it doesn't kind of matter what it is that they talk, they say. It may, it may even drive people further away if they're trying to put a sunny face on a piece of shit for lack of a better term yeah i call him gaslighter joe because that's what he's trying to do to the public and the proof is in the pudding the right direction wrong track numbers are abysmal and when right direction wrong track is abysmal they take it out on the party in power and that's the democrats his approval rating 40 percent that's abysmal um you know so he's trying to gaslight the public into the voters into thinking you know things are better than they think they are and the voters like no, I, I know things are pretty bad. I can feel it, uh, and uh, I'm going to take it out on you. And that's what happens. Last question for you before I get to Jarrett. I've got this running theory that in midterms, it, it, just because of the last 10 years where I've been deeply involved in them, this has always been the case, midterms are what less well-defined than presidentials, obviously, right? Um, but it sort of takes more time for the environment writ large to catch up with the ballot questions in all these individual races, whether it be House races, but more predominantly statewide, like governors or, or senators, in large part because you know they're making independent decisions about names that they recognize, and then you get into the fall, and it's like, well, I mean, what's going well for me, right? And you begin to see, I remember 2014, 2010, 2018, the other way, uh, what we saw after Labor Day was people starting to gravitate more towards presidential approval or a right track, wrong track than they were all summer long. Do you subscribe to that? Yes, very much so. One of my mentors told me that the ballot is often a lagging indicator. Mm. In other words, other stuff moves first mm-hmm. and then eventually the ballot catches up. Uh, and then the, the second observation uh, that I would make about that is as you look back at like 2014, 2010, even 1994 where Republicans had really good years, it was not ever reflected in the generic ballot. It would basically show those, you look back at those polls, <laughs> the October well. polls showed them tied, the generic tied, yeah. which is about where we are now. Yeah. And then suddenly the actual vote was so much better for Republicans. That's what's Just once happen. as a I Republican, I would love a cycle where it's like, oh no, this is gonna be, this is gonna be great. <laughs> I feel like every wave election Republicans have ever had in August of that year, I'm white knuckling the hell out of it. Because it's not, I mean, I look back recently on 2014, and just about every, like seven of seven targeted races had multiple consecutive polls in the month of August showing the Republican losing. And ultimately right. they won not only seven, they won 10. You know what I mean? Well, so it's, 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 as I like to say to my candidates, um, you want your pollster to be paranoid. Yeah. Because it's when you're relaxed and happy that bad things happen. Well, it, good news, when, you're a Republican. Yes, Glenn. and I'm paranoid. Well, so. <laughs> Jared, I want to get you in here because uh, a part of, what we're looking at are the economic issues that have well-defined things. You Democrats talking almost exclusively about abortion and, and, and trying to deflect from the economy writ large. But one of the ways that they've done that historically over the last 10 years is the issue of health care. Yep. And I know you've delved pretty deeply into those statistics. Yeah, look, healthcare is an issue as a party that we have not historically wanted to take on, but for 2010 and 2014, you know, everyone remembers what happened in, as recently as 2018. But when you look at some of just the, the fundamentals, healthcare is now a fifth of our economy. It is 20% of US GDP. It employs, the industry itself has 20 to 22 million employees. It's 14% of the US healthcare or US workforce is healthcare. It's not an issue as a party that we can 
shy away from. It touches every voter. It is it is in our faces. It you know it's a fourth of, of government spending, um, and it's going up. I was born thirty eight uh, years two days ago, and it was ten percent of GDP. It's now twenty percent, and it's mm-hmm. continuing to grow. And it's, it's one of those things as a party that I think we have to do a better job. We have to be willing to take on, and we have ultimately have to have a position to counter Democrats. So so Democrats. I mean, look. For those of us who've been in this game for a long time, it's tough to outbid a Democrat when it comes to health care because basically they're just arguing universal health care, yeah. right? Government takeover. Everybody deser- deserves health care, so get health care. I mean, on principle, nobody disagrees with that. It's how you go about providing it that's always been the issue. you have any guidance on any of that? Voters don't want single-payer health care. Yeah. T- Medicare for all is a is is lipstick on a pig in terms of the way that they have phrased and articulated that when you peel back the onion when you talk to voters when you get into taking away employer sponsored coverage which you know accounts for 175 million Americans they don't they don't want that they don't want what they have through their employer what they have through the private market they don't want to that to end and then move into a government run plan it's just it's we just have not done a good job of kind of combating or coming at the issue from a here's what we are for and here's what we want to do to improve the healthcare system. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, a lot of us look at, and this is one of the frustrations that I had um, as we were countering Obamacare and everything else. If you just look at this at, at like a consumer level, right? You're nobody likes to go back through the plan list and try to decipher from the 50-page book how you rebook yourself under an insurance plan and whether your doctors are eligible or, or whatnot, right? And and one of the reasons where we were so successful during Obamacare is they fun, fundamentally upended that. You had to go do that, right? Which is essentially what they're suggesting again. I mean, I got to imagine that plays a role, right? Yeah, we've been polling for Americans for Prosperity on what they call the their personal option plan mm-hmm. and measured it up against Medicare for All and measured it up against public option, and uh, voters respond well to it. And I think one thing that's important is a lot of Republican candidates don't want to talk about health care, but voters want them to, particularly even Republican voters want to know what you are. So we're afraid of health care, but what Americans for Prosperity has developed uh, working with us, and we uh, built on work done by Frank Luntz and Kristen Soltis Anderson. So this is a multi-year, multi-research effort. Uh, we've put together uh, Americans for Prosperity has put together. We've pulled on it um, a, a number of different uh, conservative healthcare options that uh, give people more. Give me like choice. a thumbnail of what we're talking about. Well, that's here. Jared's job. Okay, Jared. Well, let me just come come back to that point in terms of Republican voters because I think that's really interesting, and I give a lot of credit to to Americans for Prosperity for. We're not in an environment where anything's going to move on healthcare from a Republican standpoint right now. But I, what I think they're doing is playing a longer game to position against Medicare for all. Because look, you go back to 2020 and you look at the Democratic uh, primary exit polls before COVID really took over. The number one issue in every single state was healthcare. No question. In, in every single state, but for South Carolina, of the 20 states that had exit polls, a majority of Democratic voters were in favor of single payer healthcare. And so it is an issue that is core to Democrats. It is an issue that we have to be prepared when it comes up in in sort of the cycle. To Glenn's point on it being an issue for Republican voters, we did a a survey, a national survey in June, and one of our questions was just of Republicans and independents. And it was, if Republicans take back control of Congress next year, 
which of the following issues would you like them to focus on? The number two issue after lowering inflation and gas prices was lowering healthcare costs, ahead of building a wall, ahead of lowering the deficit, ahead of reducing crime, ahead of a lot of things that we think Republican voters, and they do care about, and we think they care about and they do care about, Healthcare, lowering healthcare costs was the number two issue from the Republican voters. And I guess your point is you don't have to take the bait on what that means, Yeah. right? Yeah. Lowering, lowering costs from a Democratic point of view is just a government takeover, right? You reduce innovation, you probably eliminate your choice of doctors, all these kind of things that yep. we've seen as a result of, of progressive healthcare plans. Conservatively, you can kind of accomplish the same means by a market-based system. Yeah, and when you look at the kind of the elements of the personal option health plan, it is a lot of free market principles. A lot of this stuff was was sort of started to be written about or pushed forward from conservative outlets in the 1990s. But it's kind of bringing everything together and what they've done that I think that's been very smart has putting branding around it and giving, there's a sense from when you talk to voters as much as we do, there's a sense that they are losing control over their own health care. And so this notion of the personal option and more choice and more control connects extremely well. You see it. We've done focus groups. We've done a lot of survey work. You see it connect with voters and they they sort of feel like they can take back more control over their own health care, their own decision making. Look, people in this country feel like the healthcare system needs improvement, but they don't necessarily they're not saying we want more government control. We want a single payer system. They're just saying, hey keep what works and let's fix what's broken. So so candidates in your mind need to engage on this, but there's plenty of ground in order to do it while maintaining conservative principles and not following Democrats exactly. down the rabbit hole of what else do the government pay for. And for and for specifics, candidates and activists can go to www.personaloption.com for the details of the policies and they'll say look at these and say wow i feel pretty comfortable and you don't have to run on all of it um, but again saying look we've got a plan is a lot better than saying yeah i don't really want to talk about this Mm -hmm. and and to your point josh the the question about kind of more consumer more free market a lot of the things in it without getting too wonky kind of a high level there's more price transparency in terms of just knowing what you're going to pay yeah, why not why, why would nobody that, that's always just been a surprise to me why we don't touch that it's something why that, can't you order your health care like you order everything else in life and that's one of the things that's been very interesting we've we've kind of asked a lot of questions around hey what should the industry the healthcare industry look more like and when we talk to voters about this it's the amazons it's walmart's it's grocery stores it's the ability to look at things kind of next to each other and make decisions based on whether it's perceived quality, Whole Foods versus, you know, Food Lion or whatever it might be, perceived quality, if it's econo- an economic decision, lower cost because it's a more routine thing. They just want the ability to shop more. They want more, go ahead, Glenn. Less hassle, more choice, more control, and as Jared talked about, more openness in terms of pricing. Yeah, I think the hassle piece is a big part. I Look, Republicans have done a pretty good job of choice and I think they've done a decent job at sort of the open market thing. The hassle piece is something that has just been left by the side of the road. Yeah. And that is something that just, but I don't know a single family that, that doesn't dread open season at the end of every year yeah. when they have to try to figure out their new health care plan, right? Uh, makes a ton of sense. Listen, fellas, I'm glad you guys are doing this. Uh, we'll stay on it. We'll stay in touch. And hopefully people can learn a little bit something from what you guys have on their website. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Man, Bolger is just a great guy. That guy has a lot of interesting things to say. Well, and, and Jarrett, with his knowledge of healthcare and messaging, I mean, look, we happen to be involved 
at this table. We've been happened to be involved in sort of the Republican resurgence on this issue with the repeal and replace and all the anti-Obamacare yeah. stuff. And we've seen that sort of go by the wayside in the last, you know, four years or so. But it's, it's about time that Republicans get back on, on offense on this issue. And I think they provided a pretty good roadmap. Um, guys, we... <laughs> We mentioned penis the other day. <laughs> we were ta- we were tagged in this update by like two dozen people I on know. Twitter. I, I can't. Pro- so I can't remember what what was the acronym. No, it doesn't matter. The, so it's, it's, it's some a scientific sci- journal that's yeah. that, that is PNAS. Right? PNAS. What yeah. I was dumbfounded to find out was that this wasn't one of McDaniel's like bizarre study finds things yeah. where he just pulled it out of thin air. This no, is like this a legit. preeminent journal. It, like people actually consider this to be like penis. I found yeah. it. It is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. <laughs> penis is formidable. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. I mean, We're going to get it's so highly, many emails. Can we, can we agree? Penis is highly respected. <laughs> respect the penis. Highly respected but penis. But it turns, so, it turns out penis is also rigid in their standards. Wow. So in, in Respect the penis, yes. right? Agreed? Yes. So okay. this latest news, uh, the White House climate official was sanctioned prestigious science body aka AKA penis put inside the penalty box (laughs) Jesus Christ I mean my god (laughs) Ashbrook Um, so this is why by the Washington Post yeah right so this is penis is infiltrated deeply into oh my god mainstream my god please stop media Uh, The nation's most prestigious scientific body said Tuesday that it has barred a key White House official focused on climate change, Jane Lubchenco, uh, from participating in its publication activities for the next five years. The decision by Pinas is a rare rebuke of Lubchenco, a marine ecologist who serves the deputy director in climate and environment at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, Pinas said um, that Lubchenco violated its code of contact before joining the Biden administration last year. While serving as an editor of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Lubchenco accepted an article for publication that was later retracted because it relied on outdated data and because she has a personal relationship with one of the authors, who is her brother-in-law. Of mm. Congressional Republicans mm. have previously voiced concern about the incident, saying Lubchenco's actions appear to violate the administration's scientific integrity principles. Uh, so Penas is like, get out of here. Get out of here. And you don't fuck with Penas. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So <laughs> doesn't matter what society the says. The whole thing, like I'm reading this in so much gobbledygook. It just makes me so mad. This is like a marine ecologist talking about climate change. It's like, do you know why the term climate change exists? Is it used oh, to be called be global warming, <laughs> yeah. right? And then good. they found out, oh, no, actually, like a lot of parts of the world are actually getting cooler, right? Right. Remember, they just talk about the ozone layer. There's a whole ozone Every little fairy tale they come up with. So they're like, global warming doesn't work. Right. So climate change. We have to have if it goes up or down. Right, so, so the, anytime, up or down, we win. It's anytime, like, have the tails, I win. Anytime anything happens, it can be blamed exactly. on it. Exactly. Right. And it's like, holy shit. Because things like, change. Like, we allow these you know crazy what? people. They're like, you believe that the weather can be changed by people. Like, are you, are you serious? It's, like, if I drill, can I make it rain? Like, what's happening? Like, the most <laughs> ridiculous. Like, I can't believe we love these people in society. It's so it's so fascinating, <laughs> Smug, because I woke up this morning and it was 60- Thinking about penis i know it <laughs> i know it's a frequent occurrence 
It was 62 degrees outside, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the climate has changed. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday, it was 85. Today, it's 62. Climate changed. It's like, you, you, has anyone ever asked these clowns, these asshole scientists? <laughs> okay, so, okay so, so what happened? We are all going to get banned from peanuts. So, so, so did the dinosaurs drive too many diesel trucks that caused the ice age? Is that what's happening? That was climate change? Or does the world Clearly. things just change? Clearly, things just change. No, it was because they were drilling. Dinosaurs were drilling for oil, and it caused no, an it ice was age. Fracking. Right? It and was fracking. And, and then the ice age ended. Why? Because the mammoths are drilling for oil now. No, man. The cavemen, <laughs> the cavemen were fracking, and that pulled too much out of the out of the shale bed. Well, how do you get caves? Right, you got to drill. That's right. 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 Penis knows that. Um, but here's the bottom line on this story: is that the person who is playing the leading role in developing and overseeing this administration's scientific integrity, mm-hmm. banned by penis. <laughs> Gone. Banned. Gone. They won't have it, neither will I. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, before we get to a game, which I desperately want to play, uh, Smug's two worst fears, budget airlines and eating bugs, a Japanese airline adds insects to their flight meals, and they're here to stay. This is according to some bizarre source. That Congratulations, li- McDaniel, for finding this. I mean, this is a perfect example. It, ZMEScience.com. Yeah. I mean, God, this guy's well sourced. <laughs> this is, but it, but it's probably about as reliable as peanut. Yeah. Well, which, as we know, is the most highly respected. Can't get off it. Yeah, it's highly it's respected. <laughs> Jesus, I can't even. I've tried to recover. Chicken pasta or ground grasshoppers. Uh, a Japanese airline has recent, recently introduced a range of in-flight meals contain crushed cricket powder in mm. order to promote food sustainability. And, and, mm. So this enrages me on so many levels. <laughs> Number one, I'm not going to eat bugs. Never will. Never will. Like, I don't care how many libs or Hollywood stars are like, oh, yes, you should eat the bugs. None of them eat the bugs, dude. They want everyone else to eat the bugs. And and the fact that you're like on a, a plane, you're you've got the jet engine behind you while you're eating crickets to save the planet. It's like what? Yeah, how does this How work? does this happen? Yeah. Why am I having a paper straw on a plane? Right. Like it's sort it's this, this, all this ridiculous. Like it's, number because 1 Because it's all fake. It's sort it's of all fake. fake. It's, it's all fake. It's sort of like the whole like we're all in this together. We got to use the paper straws. Exactly. But like you know, they'll all take a private like jet Like Leonardo to DiCaprio's right. PJ is not serving him crickets. I'll tell you that much. Like right. 100%, you know, it's not serving uh, crickets on there. And 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 for for and, and McDaniel's right, for a budget airline, like to add insult to injury, right? If this is anything like Southwest where so I was told this by somebody. There's no like, you know, you can't pick your seat. There's no like assigned seating. It's basically just like <laughs> You know the purge. It, it's like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> the door of the plane opens, and all the monsters run in there. And if you get your chair, you get your, it's like musical chair, but for like the the absolutely worst people. <laughs> oh. There's <laughs> nothing you add wrong serving with bugs airline. on top of that, right? Where like Southwest used to be like, oh, we don't serve food. They have like, and they and they stopped even serving peanuts because they're like, oh, well, we wouldn't want someone's kid to be in the same room as a peanut, right? <laughs> so what, are, what are they? What are they? <laughs> so they're like, we serve pretzels, which is like, okay. And you don't have beers. So, like, what are you going to do after you've had the pretzels? It's, it's like they're trying to torment you fight. as much as possible. The answer is fight. There's kids crying. Everyone's going ham. It's so, <laughs> it's basically steerage. Like, it's hell, hell on wings, right? 
the worst situation. <laughs> and the Japanese airlines like, how can we make this worse? Crickets. Feed them goddamn bugs. You know what gets me about the you know whether it's the bugs or like the input the impossible meat or whatever is if it was good, like on its own merits. They wouldn't have to process it there to make go. it into right. like fake beef. There you go. Right? right. Like the reason why you have to do that is because you have to trick people. Yep. Because you know that people want meat. Yeah. Right. It's like if it was actually good, it would just be the crickets are good. Like the right? pig, it would just be like just, oh the the impossible fake fake beef is good as you know anything else other than trying to pretend it's a patty. Right. Like a pig is a disgusting animal, but it's a delicious delicious. One. And humans are like, I will overlook this horrible animal and I'll eat it. It's great. Fantastic. Right. right. So if you're trying to be like, no, actually, we have to trick people into eating a goddamn bug. This is one of the crazy segments we've ever done. It's <laughs> <laughs> just an absolute explosion. Oh, we'll get letters on the whole of this. <laughs> on uh, all of it. Thank you so much. Uh, guys, let's just play a game, huh? It is. <laughs> it's our Thursday episode, and that can only mean one thing. King of the Hill. Uh, so our champion is Alyssa Farah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And Smug, you have Alyssa. Mm-hmm. Holmes, who you bring into the table? Smoking Joe Walsh. Wow. <laughs> Smoking Joe Walsh. Okay, well, let's go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Once again, it's time for King of the Hill. In the blue corner, fighting out of the Tea Party Caucus, Joe Family Court Walsh! And now, in the red corner, fighting out of the ABC Daytime Drama, and current (laughs) champion of the world, Alyssa the View you know, that's the mark of a professional. Yeah, very professional. A right, professional. Back, right back into it. Get it done. Another Just take. Let's go. Extremely professional. <laughs> oh. Extremely professional. <laughs> Holy shit. Where do we start? Okay, okay. Smug, you just play. Yeah. yeah. So so I have an overarching theme for Alyssa this week. Liz Cheney. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's been a lot of takes. I wanted to go straight. to. It, it, it's like in Lord of the Rings where they have to go to the volcano where all the evil came from. I went there. Okay. I found the Liz Cheney takes, and that's what I'm bringing for the folks. The first tweet from Melissa Farrow. I've worked for and advised countless elected officials, but no leader has inspired me more than Liz Cheney. There's an undeniable power to a woman standing outward history, throwing it all on the line to do what's right for our country. Thank you, Liz Cheney. <laughs> Replies turned off. <laughs> That feels very, very in line with the view. Uh, okay. This is Joe Walsh. He is retweeting a tweet by Greg Sargent, who is posting a story by Ron, Ron Brownstein. And the story on Ron Brownstein is that the Republicans that he has spoken with uh, say that the RNC would go to absurd lengths to avoid allowing Cheney on the same debate stage as Trump. (laughs) Which is funny in its own right. Here is Joe Walsh. Good piece here by Ron Brownstein. And yes, the RNC would go to absurd lengths to keep Cheney away from Trump. Heck, 
When I primaried Trump in 2020, <laughs> the RNC canceled 22 primaries and caucuses, and that was because of little old me. Liz Cheney's a much bigger name than I am. Wait, this he is- wasn't even on the fucking ballot. <laughs> this guy honestly tweeted that he's the one that's responsible for the RNC decisions about primaries in the 2020 sitting president nomination process. I'm not even sure he made a ballot. Did he was he even on a ballot anywhere? Uh, technically, he was on the in the Iowa caucus. So he was in the Iowa caucus. He got 348 votes. Was there any other zero pledge delegates? <laughs> zero pledge delegates. <laughs> but the the premise behind this tweet is that the the actions of the RNC right. they were very worried about Joe Joe Walsh. Walsh perennial powerhouse Joe Walsh the absolute like failed and and disgraced congressman from I don't know is he Illinois I think he was yeah Illinois. Illinois yeah amazing take amazing take I mean these are both really good takes really good takes Alyssa Farah countless she's advised countless she says i've worked for and advised countless elected officials but no leader has inspired me more than liz cheney this is what really i, I love there's an undeniable power to a woman standing outward history standing outward history listen to this can you believe her <laughs> is that like a buckley thing it's she's, a buckley she's, thing she's, she thinks she's she's buckley reborn yeah She's like, I'm on the view. The, the conscience of a conservative. Buckley speaks mm, through me. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. She's a Goldwater Republican. That's what she is. Intellectual. Um, okay. Shit, this is hard. This is going to be a tough one. Do you want to hear it again? Yeah. Good piece by Ron Brownstein. Yes, the RNC would go to absurd lengths to keep Cheney away from Trump, which in and of itself, I could stop with that. And I think it would be a winner. Heck. When I primaried Trump in 2020, the RNC canceled 22 primaries and caucuses. And that was because of little old me. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I like both these tweets because they, they both include, like, irrational delusions of grandeur. The countless thing is just so yeah. insane, dude. Yeah. Countless. S- countless. She's been in that countless. much demand. People just call and they're like, Alyssa. Please tell me how to be a rhino. And this is this is some like so I got the insider track on this. Many people have told me they were trying to get rid of her at the Freedom Caucus, so they dumped her on DOD. And DOD was like, "We're trying to get rid of her." They dumped her on Pence. Pence is trying to get rid of her. They dumped her on the White House. I, I, I object. Many allegedly, people are saying, allegedly, many people are saying I object. That is not a fact. Statement. I object. That I, I see no. I, I see the view. I see no evidence presented for any of these yeah, well, yeah that is conjecture well, many people are saying that's, well it's hearsay and i don't know if that's admissible hearsay is not admissible but i do appreciate the mm-hmm. context nevertheless <laughs> we all appreciate the context um because you know she's listening she's like how did those bastards find out okay so <laughs> the idea that this guy's responsible yes, so that's, otherwise that's, he would have beaten trump this is this is the thing the liz cheney take is is, is good it's it's a good take the delusions of grandeur, incredible. I don't think it it's better than the paranoia, the idea that Joe Walsh is, is the entire RNC was like trying to hatch a plan to keep him off the debate stage with Donald Trump, who was running for re-election. For that reason, Joe Walsh wins round one. Hmm. <laughs> right, I'm going to go for the knockout here. Oh, wow. 
He came into office attacking law enforcement in our intelligence community. He spent his presidency attacking law enforcement in our intelligence community. And now 19 months out of office, he's still attacking law enforcement in our intelligence community. And his cult does too. That's weak. What? That's so weak. I got, I got a banger. Okay, here we go. It's just not weak. This is Alyssa. I hope someday I get the opportunity to cast my vote for Liz Cheney. Oh, God. Which is just like so gross. <laughs> like if you had, because 100% she's like, I will just say whatever anyone wants for money. But you have to take a shower after that and be like, ugh, like how disgusting are you? But the beauty of it is, and the reason it's such a like coastal take is the only people who have that take are people who would never live in Wyoming. They'd be like, why would I live in Wyoming? I live in New York, D.C. or L.A. Those are the only places she's ever, you know, she's only lived in D.C. and L.A. So, of course, her take is, I hope someday to vote for Liz Cheney. But it's not like I'd move to Wyoming. Well, what, what I, what, <laughs> what, what, what I, what I really like about the, the Alyssa Farah take there is it's what you frequently find in the replies of every long shot lib candidate running in a red state where like they put up some two minute, you know, um, I'm walking around, you know, um, ad and, you know, so-and-so is the bad guy, yada, yada, yada. And if you read the replies in there, like every lib replies, like I don't live in Kentucky or mm-hmm. South Dakota or wherever, but, but man, I wish I could vote for you. Bingo. You know, I, I, I really Bingo. wish I could vote for you. And then those people, will be in that candidate's replies for the whole rest of the cycle. And, the, and then the day after the election, how stupid are the voters of X yep. Republicans? Those back those backwoods hicks voted for Bingo. Republican X. Fuck those people. Yep. You know, because secretly they hate us. They hate us. They absolutely hate yep. us. She would never move to Wyoming. No. She would hate it there. Before you make a ruling, can I make a, a, just a secondary plea here? I mean... Can I, can I just... You're throwing yourself at the mercy of the, this court. Well, I just want to... I think there's important context... Okay. ...to be provided here. Okay? He came into office attacking law enforcement in our intelligence community. Remember the fact that James Comey showed up on oh, day oh, one... Oh, you don't have to remind me. ...and, and provided the beep-beep tape right. on the desk of, of the Oval Office, and it's Trump right. that invited the attacks, right? right? It's Trump that started the attacking yeah. Jim of the Comey, intelligence community. Jim Comey, who then ran downstairs into his car to furiously type out his little Boy Scout notes and then make sure all of that meeting got leaked to the media so that they could launch a, a independent prosecutor. And then you had Hayden and yeah. that douche. Clapper. Clapper and everybody Brennan. else. Brennan. who yeah. were constant part, fixtures yeah. on the cable community. Schiff. Completely attacking him with absolutely... And somehow it is Trump that attacked right. the law enforcement I mean, look, the, you, are, you, you are singing from the old man's song sheet like this that's that is barrel of the back content for me as judge and jury however Alyssa wins round two yeah oh, gosh okay Ooh. <laughs> I, I, got, I got a really strong number like third round I, I held on to this one boy I thought I made a good case you there. did so so this is a beauty <clears throat> my least favorite genre of punditry at the moment is people who could never get a security clearance opining on how to properly handle classified information. So this has a lot of layers to it. Number one, yet again, she's trying to be like, oh, wow, I've, I've, 
I've advised countless it is, people. It is interesting how so many of her tweets are actually just a brag on herself. Trying to. Yeah. Trying to, right? And the, the, the best thing is, is, yes, of course, she's a hypocrite, but the hypocrisy of someone who feels so self-important and that the subject is so important, handling of properly handled, you know, classified information. Why didn't we hear any about this when she was working in the White House? <laughs> this is from Joe Walsh. And what I'm doing here is I feel like I've provided the feather bed by which the judge and jury rests his head on a nightly basis with this one. <laughs> okay. Fact. Colon. Russia interfered in the 2016 election to help elect Trump. Fact. Colon. Trump obstructed justice. He did all he could to stop the investigation into what Russia did. Fact. Colon. Mueller said there was collusion. He couldn't get the info needed to prove it. It was a conspiracy to collude. Wow. Really? That's it? Awesome. I got that. So, this is apropos of nothing. He's just mentioning like what 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 is the context in which so he it's, decides- he's retweeting a tweet by brit hume that says byron Re- byron york notes the similarity of the trump russia collusion sensation which went on for two years and turned out to be the dead end from which most of our media seems to have learned nothing yeah and he retweeted he doubles that, down he retweeted that by saying fact russia yeah, yeah, yeah. interfered in the 2016 election to help elect Trump. He's still he's in that he's in that like brainworm place right. of people who believe a hundred thousand dollars of pay, Facebook ads right. actually elected Donald Trump. Well, n- not just that, but that Trump colluded with but, Russia. And that, so that's the next layer. The next layer is he obstructed justice when people are trying to investigate the collusion. Right. And then the collusion that didn't happen. And then M- Mueller said there was collusion, <laughs> which obviously didn't. he didn't say. And he couldn't get the info needed to prove it was a conspiracy. It was so, it was so close. Just <laughs> couldn't find the right TPS report. He was so close to locking him up. Triple layered. It's yeah. like an onion here. Yeah. We've got, <laughs> like, Mueller actually said there was conspiracy. You just didn't read it right. And and, and, and he would never have been Trump, he would never have been president if it wasn't for Russia and those Facebook ads. Uh, Smug, can you give me one more reading of yours? Absolutely. <clears throat> this is Alyssa Farrow. My least favorite genre of punditry at the moment is people who could never get a security clearance opining on how to properly handle classified information. Replies turned off. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, man. God, this the one's fact not, that he's still he's still one of those few not people. Close. The fact that he's one of those still those few people. I mean, that is the most fucking crazy thing of all time that there is people walking this planet who actually believe that Donald Trump yeah. coordinated with the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin in order to win the 2016 election. Like that to me, after all the preponderance of evidence and everything we've seen over the last two years, is amongst the craziest things that you could say. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's I think that's right. I think that's right. Joe Walsh wins round three. Wow. <laughs> first time. I think he's a first is he a first timer? He might be first time winner. I think we've played him before. Have we? 
I don't know. T-Rex will be all over it. T-Rex sure. will know, but I, I went deep down the cavern because you can only imagine all of the Cheney takes this week. There was so much gold, and I was like, no, no, no. No, you sold it well, too. You know, Joe Walsh has got it. Uh, hat tip the Mira. She's been all over Joe Walsh, by the nice. way. Nice. Uh, hat tip there. <laughs> all right, so let's get to this interview. Guys, I'm more excited about this interview than I've been in a lot of interviews. Yeah. Michelle Tafoya. I want to welcome to the program somebody I've been a huge fan of for years. You probably know her from her sideline reporting with NBC, ABC, CBS, basically anywhere you can find a football game or any other kind of sport. She's just ubiquitous in that in that role. But she also now hosts a podcast called Sideline Sanity. Michelle Tafoya, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So listen, I grew up I, a huge fan of yours. I remember I'm old enough to remember back in the WCCO days. And, oh my gosh. And as a Minnesotan had a ton of pride as you graduated up the ranks to CBS and started doing sideline reporting. And what an incredible career you've had. I was way over my skis back then. Let me just tell you that. Way over my skis. The, uh, I, my life has been a series of learning curves. That is the truth. <laughs> I mean, you got into that line of work really early, right? Where there just there weren't a ton of women sideline reporters, women who had access to locker rooms, who did real reporting from yeah. the sidelines of, of things like NFL football games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was early, I guess. I, to me, I remember Leslie Visser being the first yeah. female sideline reporter. And, you know, I, I remember Robin Roberts anchoring Sports Center, And I just looked up to those people. And before I knew it, I was their colleague. And it was it was a little overwhelming, to be honest. I think when I first got hired by CBS Sports, that was my first TV job was a network job right because you did you radio. did like k-fan and, and radio yeah. stuff before that right yep yep and wcco tv helped get me hired at cbs sports by sort of saying you know what if 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 you hire we'll use her too and you know we'll share the cost and all of that so <laughs> which is laughable now considering what i made but um, i'm still ever so grateful to both of those entities for giving me a chance because i had no real TV experience to speak of, and I was thrown into the frying pan. Well, to say you took advantage of it is a, is a huge understatement, because like I said, you were a fixture on the sideline for years, Super Bowls. I mean, literally any major sporting event, it felt like you were a part of. When you were growing up and thinking about what you wanted to do for a living, was it sports kind of always the center of your interest? No, I mean, sports was the center of my family's interest. My dad was a massive sports fan. He, I remember when the Olympics were in LA in 1984, he saved up all kinds of money to make sure that we could go. He scoped out parking spots uh, that wouldn't cost us an arm and a leg to be able to go. And we didn't go to every event, but we went to enough to feel like we were part of it. And it was so important to him. He was just, uh, he, he just felt really strong. And this is my dad, kind of a first generation American from an Hispanic background seeing athletics as a major thread in the fabric of America. And, you know, so we were just patriotic as all get out when we went to those Olympics. It was so fun. And then my brother was a star basketball player in high school. Um, my sister was a very good swimmer. I had another sister who was pretty good at everything. And then I was just kind of, eh. but I tried, <laughs> I tried, uh, but talking was the sport I was best at. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I know the feeling, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, but you you have, um, 
What's so interesting to me, it's got to be part of the cadence of what you grew up with, right? The the understanding yeah. of not only the sporting event, but the information on the sideline, yes. which you, you sort of, I, I, in my mind, sort of revolutionized in a lot of different ways by providing real stuff that a fan, not, you know, beyond the expression on the face that uh, the coach had on the way off the sideline, like you provided the in-depth analysis of what people were thinking on the sidelines and, and all that kind of thing. And I got to imagine like part of growing up, there's your information that you wanted to know, your family wanted to know. That, that I think that's probably true. I've just naturally always been a very curious person, really curious. And I and I like to disseminate stories first. I like to go tell people. I was always that kind of kid. I wanted to be the first one running in the house with the news for my mom or dad about so-and-so just getting in trouble. You know, that's just sort of how I was always wired. But I think I, I just, I knew I was coming at this job with a different set of tools than than a lot of people in the field. I didn't have a history of being an athlete. I didn't have, you know, the the Barbie doll good looks. I just had to come at it with all of my resources. And for me, that was being curious, getting my facts right, being super, super prepared, sometimes overly prepared, which is, it can be a problem. And, and just this desire to do it right, the desire to do it the right way. And I was so fortunate along the way to have some really good mentors to help me hone those skills because that to me is the most important part is getting it right yeah, not getting it first totally and surrounding yourself with people who help and yes help and help. that was just good fortune and a lot of them were men so these days when women come to me young ladies and they say you know you being a woman in sports i want to get your perspective and i said well hang on a minute don't don't just assume that my input is going to be more valuable than that of a, a man some of my biggest champions were men. Some of my greatest teachers were men. I thought Bob Costas was the end-all be-all to, to you know, yeah. when he anchored the Olympics. It was like, oh, my gosh, look at him go. So listen to him, you know, listen to that vocabulary and the, and the delivery. And so, uh, but, but I didn't think of it as male, female. I mean, I knew the reality of it. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I wasn't stupid. But I also told myself, I'm going in to compete against every other reporter in the yeah. room, every other sports journalist there, not just the women. I'm going to compete against everybody. I want to be the best one in the room. That's right. I don't, I don't care what you look like. So that's the advice I, I give to people. Don't put that chip on your shoulder that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, it's not like Leslie Visser was writing you talking points, right? You got to no. learn, learn a little no. bit from everybody. And right. to, to be the best, you got to beat everybody regardless if you're a everybody. man or a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's so, it's, so, it's, it's so interesting to me. Do you remember kind of your first big national broadcast? And, and what was that like? Oh my gosh. I so many come to mind. The national championship football game where I made a blistering error in the middle of the game. Really? Um, I remember all the bad stuff. I do, I remember all the mistakes that I've made. And but but I learned from those. And those scars helped me. And so, you know, as as I'm raising two children now, I realize I think I realized long ago in raising them, I'm not going to coddle these kids. They got to, they got to get scars. You got to learn through adversity. And that is how I learned. Believe me when I tell you. So yeah, I, I think I remember the very first time I was going to anchor a, a CBS at the half uh, of a college basketball game. I was in a studio in New York. There was, there was a no teleprompter. <laughs> there was a, a stack of cards on which I had my notes I was on camera the entire time. There were no cutaways to highlights. The highlights were over your shoulder. 
So I had no luxury of looking down or looking at the monitor. I was just going. And it, I mean, I prayed so hard in my dressing room before I went on camera. I didn't have a makeup artist. I mean, it was just, it was, it was something. It was something. And I I thought, I thought I was going to throw up beforehand, but I calmed myself down and uh, somehow got through it. Did you, uh, I mean, obviously, like everybody in any profession, you learn from your experiences, as you yes. just said, you learn from from the mistakes as well as the successes. Uh, did, did you have a moment at some point relatively early on in your career where you're looking around, you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this? I don't know that I had time for that. Yeah. Honest to God, it was so overwhelming in those first six. I, I often recall saying those first six months at CBS, my first TV job was a network job. Those first six months I was in I was in shock. So and it wasn't that good kind of shock. Like, wow, I've made it. It was what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I, I think I deserved. I mean, I got hired, but holy cow, just focus. Just it was this fog almost. And and so you know, no, I don't know that I ever really stopped to think about it that way. I remember one really fun moment was in Rio at the 2016 Olympic Games, and I'm covering Michael Phelps, and it's his last Olympic Games, and walking out of the Aquatic Center one night and going, I cannot believe I get paid to do this. This is the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was great. But I don't I don't know that I ever let it you know, I'm sure I had those moments where I was looking at a camera at a Super Bowl and knowing there were millions and millions and millions of people about to watch my stand-up. But I always just thought about one person, and that was my producer who was sitting in the truck critiquing the hell out of me for whatever I was about to deliver. And we had collaborated, and, and I wanted to deliver what he thought was the right thing and the rest be damned is kind of how i approached it that's one one way to keep you grounded right you surround yourself <laughs> with people that give you some common some constructive criticism along oh, the way oh i had a lot i had i had a great deal of that yes. <laughs> great deal so you've i mean look you covered an incredible amount of amazing athletes and athletic adventures <laughs> throughout the yeah. world is there is there any sort of people or or personalities that stand out to you as as people that uh were particularly interesting brett Favre always comes to mind first and you know i covered one of his most consequential games which was the monday night football game where he was then with the vikings yeah, oh yeah i remember that hosting like it was the yesterday. green bay packers with aaron Rodgers, their first time facing each other and Favre and the Vikings won, and I got the post-game interview. And I remember the head of of remote at ESPN said to me, because this was when Monday Night Football had moved to ESPN, he said to me, if Favre and the Vikings win, you get as much time as you want in the post-game. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was starting to cheer for Brett at that point, just because you never get that kind of an opportunity. So that moment is well-documented in this house. Our producer of that game had Brett sign footballs for the producer, director, sideline reporter, and play-by-play an analyst. And I, that's sitting on a shelf next to a picture where someone took a picture of me in the post game. You're seeing the back of Brett's head. You're seeing me with the microphone. And we are surrounded by reporters and cameras. I mean, you would have thought he just signed, you know, some sort of peace treaty, but it was crazy. And it's just a great reminder of that of that moment and being in that moment. So Brett's one of them. Peyton Manning's one of them. You know, there, there's J.J. Watt, um, yeah. Mike Tomlin. I, I, there is a, a pretty good list of people that I have loved covering. Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could go on and on. And 
Bobby Wagner, the linebacker with the Seattle yeah. Seahawks, one of my favorite humans. There are just a lot of really great people in the league. And so, unfortunately, once in a while you hear about the bad stuff, right? These days we're hearing about Marshawn Lynch and we're hearing about Aqib Tlaib. And yep. they're both supposed to be on that Thursday night Amazon pregame show. And I don't know if that's going to happen anymore for those guys. I don't know. But I, I'm just throwing it out there. But it, yeah. it's uh, it's so you hear about that stuff, right? But does everyone amplify how much drew Brees does for the community you know how much cam hayward does for the community that 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 stuff i i think people just don't want to hear it it's like hey a plane landed safely today yeah that's exactly right i think that's exactly right they're doing you know something that's not salacious and therefore not not news but i think what what's different about your reporting over the years is that you could tell that you've developed an element of trust with the people that you were covering, right? They were more open. It seemed like you had a relationship. It, it, frankly, it seemed like every time you pulled somebody aside off the sideline, they felt like they were old friends, right? And oh, so it that's trans- really nice of you to say. Well, it translated into the camera for the fans that were watching as we're old friends, right? Because <laughs> they were much more casual in the way that they approached all of that. I loved that moment at every game was the post game interview was so much fun for me because you're always interviewing a winner, right? That's how we did it. We always interviewed the winner. I mean, that's who people wanted to hear from. And so they were in a good mood and there was so much fun to be had if you, if you wanted to do it right. And, you know, yes, you had to ask about certain things about games, uh, a particular play, whatever. Yes. You needed to get into some of those. But it 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 so much has to do with body language and tone. And yes, by the way, I did this for close to 30 years. Right. So over the course of time, people got to know me and trust me. And I proved my trustworthiness because I have a lot of off the record stories that I'll never divulge. <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, we, I, mean, I mean, we got the time, Michelle. I, we got we got the time. <laughs> oh, if only. But you know, I won't. Yeah. Because that that mattered to me. When someone told me something and said, please don't repeat, I, I wouldn't. A reporter with integrity, Michelle? What in the world are you talking about? This is outrageous. There are some of us out there. <laughs> I love it. Here well, it's, we it, it's a good transition because uh, towards the end of your, your sports career, you, you started like anybody, I think, in America who's got their professional duties. You got more of the interests than just sort of what you're doing for a living. And mm-hmm. You became sort of outspoken in the political arena and ultimately led to interests in the political arena. Tell us a little bit about that. I think my political awakening was 9-11, honestly. Yeah, me too, honestly. How could it not, right? For those of us that remember it as vividly as we do, I know a lot of people, uh, your viewers, your listeners were too young. Uh, I was not. I can tell you exactly what I was doing in that moment. I was writing thank you notes to NBA players I had that had given me their time during the week. And I, that was a, a practice of mine was to send them a note to let them know I appreciate it. I'm sitting at my kitchen counter. My husband had gone, got in a car with a business partner to go up to a, a business meeting a couple hours away. And I remember seeing it and thinking, this has got to be some sort of movie promo I'm watching because this is some hell of special effects. My God. And then you know, turning it up and listening and just starting to kind of, we all went through that yeah. period of shock and and what in the, 
And I remember calling my parents who lived on the West Coast two hours earlier, waking them up. And then my brother was living in London at the time. And he had a really interesting experience being an expat over there and having all the people of the UK in his neighborhood just bringing, I mean, it was like a funeral. They they yeah. were bringing casseroles to his house and flying their American flags in solidarity. And, and so I, I really started to listen. I wanted answers. Like I said, I'm curious. I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to find out how we were going to be okay again. I wanted us to to fight back. Well, in many in many ways, it's the sports world that helped us get through that <laughs> time, right? I mean, we all remember, of course, the President George W. Bush first pitch oh, Yankee first Stadium, pitch, yeah. you know. But but that World Series and then the football season. I mean, there's so many stories about how the the collective nation was sort of began to heal around sports. When I went to the 9-11 Museum, they had a, a, a new exhibit that had just opened, and it was about the sports events that happened in the wake of 9-11. I was at ESPN at the time, and we were supposed to – college football was gonna, thought it was going to start up that first Saturday. Yeah. And everyone was like, no, we're not – I'm not ready. And some people were like, oh, but it will help. I'm like, it's too soon. Did you see what I saw? This is too soon. So it was delayed that first weekend afterwards. Nothing happened. I think it was the second or third weekend that college football resumed. My assignment included Monday Night Countdown on ESPN, which was the pregame show. And I went to the first Monday night game post 9-11, and it was in Green Bay, and the security was ridiculous. And my duties were on the field before the game, then I'd go up to the press box during the game and then come back down to do post-game show. As we were leaving the field, my producer and I, they entered, now we're off, we're off air, we're, we're getting ready to leave the field. They, they start playing Proud to be an American. And every seat in the place had been given a, an American flag to hold up. This, and I just started crying and I had the goosebumps and I, and it was an unbelievable moment. And, I didn't know Al Michaels yet, mm-hmm. but he was doing the play-by-play for Monday Night Football that night, and his introduction is in that exhibit at the 9-11 Museum, and I go back to it, and I looked at it, and I, I got the same old chills again. We were so unified after that, and it just made me really want to defend this place that I love, this place that my dad's parents immigrated to, and he made a life for us, mm-hmm. and So that's really where it started. Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And obviously, you're busy with your professional career and everything else. And then you kind of get to the last couple of years of your of your career. And, you know, I wonder, like, at what point do you realize? I mean, it sounds like from your very early upbringing, strong sense of patriotism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. strong sense of of what it means to be American, the American system and everything would probably guides you more towards conservatism but was there a point where you're like gosh i am a conservative uh, i think i knew it shortly after 9 11 honestly yeah I, I had voted for al gore yeah and then when i saw bush stand atop that pile and say they're going to hear from us pretty soon i my heart embraced him and then i just really started reading a lot I became, I was always a history buff, but my, I, I have suddenly just made myself start reading more and more and listening more and more and watching and paying attention. 
And when you do really dig in and do the work, for me anyway, it became pretty clear where I stood on things. In 2018, after um, the 2018 NFL season, I gave my notice to NBC and I told my producer 2019 is going to be my last season. And because I wanted to just be able to speak more freely. Mm -hmm. And in fairness, look, NBC let me do a lot of things. They let me MC dinners, Lincoln Reagan dinners. They let me appear at functions as long as I didn't, you know, go off on some rant. They allowed me to, but I was getting more and more to where I really wanted to speak out. Mm -hmm. And look, they had to protect Sunday Night Football. It was NBC's and still is NBC's hottest property, most valuable commodity, right? Most valuable property. And they just didn't want any distractions. And I understood that. So I said in 2018, 19 is going to be my last season. Mm -hmm. And then I got sort of, well, could you just go through 20 so we could get the Super Bowl done and just get me through the Super Bowl? And then our Super Bowl got moved to after the 2021 season. That was another year or so and the pandemic and all this stuff. So long story short, I stayed longer than I intended. Hmm. But once once the Super Bowl ended, it was boom. Yeah. You know, I was I was on Megan Kelly's show the next morning. I mean, so, I mean, you have to understand that, you know, much like you were a unicorn at the beginning of your career as a strong woman sideline reporter, you're a unicorn in being a conservative in this line of work anywhere nationally i think you'd be surprised interesting that is fascinating yeah i think you'd be surprised at how many conservatives are there you don't hear from them because again they're protecting their reputations which is a sad state of affairs it is it is right i mean because you know we're sort of inundated with woke culture out of the sports yeah. media and yeah. the fact that that you you know you're saying that there are a whole bunch of conservatives there that don't want to jeopardize their career. You would be career. surprised. Yeah. You would be surprised. Huh. Well, that I mean, look, I am surprised. I am surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am because it it comes across as a fan as though you kind of ha- you have to deal with the political views yes. that are being projected in order to enjoy the sport you love. Yeah. And, and I I just you know, to me when Whitney Houston sang the national anthem at that Super oh, Bowl, wearing man. that red, white, and blue headband, and and I just, I just think, I remember the the camaraderie that you know we don't agree on everything, but we were unified as Americans, mm-hmm. and there's a a lot breaking it down right now, and it's permeated everything, and you know at the risk of sounding a little loony here, I just got to screen the new film. Um, Uncle Tom 2, which Larry Elder produced. And it's mind-boggling. And I would really encourage people to see it when you see it, because there is a a major element of Marxism that's coming into the fray here and disrupting things. And it's, it's, it's provable, and so much of the narrative that you hear today can be countered and it is in this film beautifully. And so that's that's my plug there for that. I and I didn't that wasn't premeditated. I just I literally was watching the end of it before I came on with you and I was so 
so moved by it that I think I just want people to know that it's coming out and they can see it and they and, and they absolutely should see it. Oh, that's that's a terrific plug. We're always looking for films like that that can help enlighten the society more this, than what you hear every day, right? Yes, I mean, it's just, yes. it's, it's, it's awful stuff. So tell me now, what are you up to now? I mean, we know about your podcast, Sideline yeah. Sanity, which everybody should te- check out. It's yes, they should. They should check that out. They should, wherever you get your podcasts, um, <laughs> it's there. And we're on YouTube as well. Yeah, I mean, this is taking a lot of my time and energy. Uh, I do have a seven-month-old puppy that takes a lot of my time and sure. energy. That's a that's a new thing in our house because we had never had a dog in this family before. So hard you know, to take I'm, care of a dog when you're gone like five days a week, right? Well, that was the thing. There was no way my husband was going to let me do that. So <laughs> it, it was tough enough to even get it now that I'm not traveling. So anyway, but he, he's a joy. My kids are 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 going on 17 and 14 very involved in in their sports so i'm really enjoying any downtime that i get to to go to games i i have missed so much my from the day my kids were born it's from the from before i even got married i've known one life and it was full of travel and separation and and not being with my kids very often on christmas and super often on thanksgiving so the fact that you know i'm sort of settling in to this new way of life that is it's taking some getting used to but i am really excited to be around my kids more i really am i bet well listen before i get to my three questions i'd be remiss if i didn't say uh you're not one to pat yourself on the back ever about anything and this interview is included but it takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing with the background that you are, we appreciate it because it's, it's something that honestly, if there are not people who are well-established as experts in their profession, who, who can't speak to conservatism and the values, uh, that it instills, we're never going to make any progress. I, I saw so many of my friends unwilling to repost something really, really sane yeah. on Facebook and they would tell me why they were afraid. And I said, screw it. I'll do it for you. So if, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I'm not cancelable. I'm sure there was probably a point in my career where I would have been, but I'm not. Yeah. And I'm just, this is, I'm not sitting here saying, yo, I'm so brave. I, I am tired of people being shouted down and told their there's something really wrong with them for thinking really sane thoughts. That's how I came up with the name of sideline sanity. It's like, this is insanity. Some of the stuff that we're, I mean, it's absolutely crazy time. And so I, I just, and, and you know what? I'm sure there's a good share of people out there who think that I'm nuts and I'm part of the problem. I don't care. I'm going to stand up for, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. And I'm going to speak for a lot of these people who, who want, it's spoken for them. Yeah, Smug says in our show, radical normalcy, right? And if you don't have a few, <laughs> if you don't have a few ambassadors, I don't know what we're coming to. But listen, I got, I got three questions for you. All These right. are the big ones, okay? So, okay, your, your last meal on Earth, what would it be? Yeah, if, don't hate me, people. But it would be a, a an amazing platter of the best sushi on planet Earth, followed by some some cake. <laughs> 
And definitely there'd have to be wine involved. I was going to say, are we going with the red or white? Because it's a sushi uh, well, platter. Well, sushi, you know, I, I don't I don't ascribe to, I know that sometimes white tastes better, so I don't ascribe to that. It's going to probably be a, a, a Pinot Noir, a, a really good Pinot Noir. I got that. Maybe in Oregon. Uh, maybe yeah, exactly. A Willamette Valley. There yes. you go. There you go. I think I Amen. can subscribe to an awful lot of that. All right. So here's the second question. If you never got into sports journalism at all, and you had this big blank hole in the middle of your life where you could fill it with literally anything you wanted to, what do you think mm. it would be? I was on my way into television production before I ventured off on, on my own little way. I loved editing. I loved writing. I loved production. And I grew up near Hollywood, you know, in Southern California. So I think that probably would have been a safe spot to to see myself maybe in creating advertising i think some advertising is absolutely art and yeah. i and i love it i totally agree and it, it almost always finds itself in a sports context right the <laughs> truly artistic stuff is yes. is around sports that's that's fantastic i love that answer um all right so last question you got to bear with me for a minute because i got to explain it our view is that every successful person is either motivated by the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody enjoys defeat. Nobody does. Or anybody doesn't like winning. Everybody likes winning. The question is, what provides the motivation for you to overcome the next obstacle, right? And the thrill of victory person is sort of the sunny optimist that charges up the hill that is always looking for the next adventure. The agony of defeat person is somebody who's every, every success they've ever had in life lasts like two minutes. But every setback that they've ever had, they carry around like a backpack and they, they use that as the motivation to try to overcome the next obstacle. I think in the very like first five minutes of this interview, I knew I got the answer. But what you say it yourself. Yeah, I am not the sunny optimist. That that would be like Missy Franklin, you know, swimming off and then being happily right off in the sunset. No, I carry every failure with me uh, in a backpack. The backpack's very heavy. I still carry it. Uh, it's the fear of failure that drives me more than the thrill of victory. Absolutely, a thousand percent. I, I love like that. Uh, you you answered the question early on, and we just had to solidify it there. At there the you end. go. <laughs> Listen, Michelle Tavoya, again, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing, speaking truth to power, coming out to to be a, a proud conservative amidst an entire profession that seems like they want to silence everybody like you. It takes a lot of courage, and we really appreciate wow. it on the Ruthless Variety program. I am so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. It was a privilege. You bet. Take care. Is she great or what? She's great. Outstanding. And right after you recorded this, I, you came into my office, and you're like, dude, I think this is probably one of the best interviews we've ever done i just think i mean look you get outside the realm of politics and the stuff that we deal with every day and you hear from people who are in a totally different line of work who deal with just in, you know incredible national spotlight and yet they have this sort of humility and understanding about life and they feel like the need to speak out right and it takes incredible courage for somebody like that to, to yeah there's a lot to risk right you know and i think i mean one thing i like about this show is our reach beyond like your typical political people. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of like people not in politics who listen to this show. And I like that we can bring in guests who aren't, you know, all members of Congress to talk about things that, you know, regular people who don't work in this industry care about. Yeah, she was fantastic. I think the interview could have used a question about the best quarterback of the next generation, Joe Burrow, <laughs> but we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
<laughs> you just can't resist the temptation. I think we. I mean, I don't blame him. I love Joe Burrow, and I love this episode, and I love the minions. If I can say so myself, absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. And again, thank you so much to our listeners. You can catch us today if you're hearing us in the morning on the Megan Kelly Show. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.